Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at JackieService across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. Mr. Graham Barlow, welcome to the show. I am so excited that you are here. We are new friends and I feel like we're going to be longtime friends because we had an immediate connection in the last month or so connecting through a mastermind that we are both a part of with Dan Martell. And we'll start sharing more about your story and your background and how all the things interconnect, but welcome. So happy that you're here. Jackie, thank you so much for having me. It's been a bit of a whirlwind the last couple of weeks of just realizing all of the synergies and kind of fun topics we've got in common and some of the fun history. So yeah, excited to be here, excited to share, and hopefully excited to learn a little bit more about your story and everything you've been building with this too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know what? I I used to start by just going straight to the to your story. And that sometimes puts people on the spot. So how I like to start the show now is just fun. We rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. And then we'll dive into your story a little bit more. So whoever is listening in can come along on your journey as we talk about being a founder and what that's been like for you. So that's, that's coming. So if you are listening in and you want to hear about how to lead business, how to create business, how to run a business, this is going to be the podcast for you. We'll get there, but let's start simple. I love it. Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? Yeah. I grew up in Pickering, uh, just outside of Toronto. So grew up telling everyone Toronto, but then meeting people from actual Toronto who are like, Hmm, that's not even GTA. So just outside of Toronto with the nuclear power plant. Yeah. I, well, I, I now live <laughs> on Lake Huron where there's also a nuclear power plant. So that's why a lot of people actually live I up where it. I live because of Bruce power. <laughs> so I get it. I hear you. <clears throat> yep. 
And where do you live now? Where's home now? Uh, yeah, I live in Ottawa. So I moved here over 20, almost 20 years ago now um, to attempt to go to university. Okay. Attempt. We're coming back to the attempt to go to university. <laughs> favorite. It can be a favorite book, a favorite movie, a favorite quote, but something that you always recommend to people when you're maybe connecting with them or they're curious about growth or what's next for them. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I swear this is not a sponsored bit at this point, but I've been recently recommending buy back your time from Dan Martell to everyone on my leadership team, a bunch of founders I work with, um, and the entire concept of looking at your schedule, doing the audit, figuring out what you can hand off to your team, getting way more disciplined in growth organizations about being able to delegate properly train, properly document what you do and how you do it so you can hand it off and expand to a team. That's a huge one. Um, the other one that I'm always... I find funny to recommend because it's a book that changed the trajectory for my life, mm -hmm. but I've never finished it, um, was Jack Canfield's success principles. So I cannot speak to the second half of the book, never read it, don't know. Uh, but reading the first half and going through the exercise of kind of defining what success would look like when I was in my first year of university is what led me to dropping out. So the okay. first half, phenomenal. Mm -hmm. No idea what the second half was because I got so excited and so motivated doing stuff. I never actually went back to finish the book, but uh, those are, those are two big ones for me. Great records. And you know what? Again, we are not sponsored by Dan Martell, but we love Dan Martell <laughs> because we, we are do. in his group. Here's something fun. Let's, let's challenge the people who are tuning in and listening for the first five people that listen to this episode and tag Graham and I, which will make sure all the links are, are in the show with one of the one of the you know little tidbits throughout throughout the show that actually meant something to you, just tag us. You can tag us on LinkedIn. You can tag us on Instagram, Twitter, etc. I'm going to send you a copy of that book. So I'll do the next five. Oh wow he he did, he's going to do the next five. Why there not? So ten listeners who tune in to this episode and let us know what you're taking away from it because that's the whole point of these conversations is for somebody <laughs> to listen and hopefully resonate and take something away in their life. We'll send you a copy of Dan's book because it is one that should be on every bookshelf, especially if you're an entrepreneur or growing and scaling Absolutely. a business. Amazing. Absolutely. Love that. Thank you for that. That's so kind. No, All right. Likewise. I love it. Love this. Okay. Now taking that concept into kind of this last question, which is Who's a mentor in your life that has helped you change your perspective or see through things a different way? Such a good question. Um, so challenging to point to one. And I think like, this is something we'll maybe talk about further as we go, but I think you go through stages, especially as an entrepreneur at different times in your journey, times in your career, scale of company where the people that inspire you and motivate you change and the inspiration and the coaching and the advice you need changes. Um, two that come to mind, like very much for me, um, one very recent and one 
probably 20, 15, 15 years ago at this point. Uh, first is a really good friend named Tim Kimber. He was the CEO of PlaySmart, a huge toy company. A lot of parents watching probably know the plasma car, the little car that you put the handles back and forth and um, right on. And he gave me the advice early on that 50% of everything is showing up. And it was something that I didn't really get at the time, but as I started to see a pattern in my own behavior and in just kind of creating serendipity, anytime I was looking at my calendar, I'm like, oh, I got an event I really don't want to go to, or like, I'm not sure if I should be making the time to do this thing. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Just showing up, being consistent, staying on those commitments has led to some of the biggest, most random opportunities I've ever been exposed to. And every time I find myself doubting it or questioning it, the universe has a pretty good way of reminding me that showing up is such a big part of it. And you never know what you're going to run into or who you're going to meet or how mm-hmm. it's going to change your path. So that's a huge one. Mm. Um, Profound. That's a big one. Yeah. The consistency is, is really big. <laughs> and, and I know that we could go down a whole tangent on consistency, <laughs> but gosh, just actually showing up. And when you make a commitment, holding that commitment and being there is, I would agree with you half the battle. It's like working yeah. out, getting the running shoes on is half the battle. It's, That's, it's just the consistency. It's funny how few people truly stay consistent over time yeah like it's very easy to do the hustle lifestyle for six months and just grind like crazy but as you start to build businesses over time it becomes very apparent the people that are showing up over years and over consistent time with consistent messaging values whatever it is like it it makes such a big difference um the other one that kind of caught me off guard a couple of weeks ago, but I want to give credit here because he's been a really interesting inspiration for me in the last year or two. Uh, it's been a friend, Larry O'Brien in Ottawa. Uh, he's the founder of Callion Group. And I was very excitedly in a group discussion we were in a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, I think like I'm talking with my team. I think we're going to start this podcast thing. I think we're going to do a whole series on how to scale services companies to 10 million and what that journey is like, because there's not a lot of content. And Larry kind of piped up. I was like, okay, but why 10? Why stop there? Why aren't you going bigger? Like, why would you only do 10? And I was like, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? Only oh, 10 is great. It's like, yeah. What about a hundred? What about bigger? Mm. And honestly, that's set with me so much since then. And I mean, Kellyanne's a multi-billion dollar organization. Like they've done it. And I think having that reminder and that person in your life or surrounding yourself with people in your life that push you to think bigger and achieve bigger is such a big thing. And I mean, like, Dan talks about it in his group, the whole philosophy of like planning for and targeting 10x growth mm-hmm. is easier to work towards than trying to plan for 2x growth. We had a whole thing with our leadership group uh, literally yesterday on kind of how 10x thinking changes how you approach certain problems. It's like, yeah, we can do a Band-Aid today that helps if we doubled this thing, but if mm-hmm. it went to 10x, the whole thing falls apart. So maybe let's build a solution that could go to 10x, put in a little bit of the extra work now 
and have a far more robust organization. And so that's one that's like been just in my head for weeks now of like, don't limit your own thinking. And I think that's something a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes fall into is like you set, you set realistic goals. And sometimes those realistic goals have a very limiting impact on what you can actually accomplish and how you think about solving problems. Ooh, those are like mic drop. We can stop the episode now because you've gotten your value. <laughs> those two lessons are so profound, the consistency and thinking bigger. You're so right. Thinking about um, thinking about my business from like a two X or what I think is realistic for this year and kind of looking at the growth historically and where I think we're actually going to land this year. You make decisions from that place that will likely only allow you to get to that kind of two X, which is a fantastic goal. Don't get me wrong. The decision-making though, that happens when you 10 X it yeah. completely it's changes. So different. It's so different. It's, Would I be making this decision yeah. if I was going to 10X the business? Am I going to make, you know, we talk about, we're going to talk about hiring today and people and how that's changed your business and evolve yeah. your business. Would I make this hiring decision if we were 10X? Yeah. Right. So it's just, it's a whole philosophy. So I love that. Thank you for sharing those two. Those are, those oh. are profound and really going to help people who are cute, who are listening in. Awesome. Now, now we get, now we get to the fun side, which is. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I'm learning about you as we get to know each other is how much of a serial entrepreneur you really are and how, when I looked at your history, everything is founder and CEO of multiple different companies <laughs> over, over time. So when we talk about consistency and the people who are showing up over multiple years, you're one of them as I see it. So I'm curious if you would be open to diving in and sharing a little bit more about your story and what got you here. Awesome. I heard consistency. And then I think we cut out for a second. You but did. We were back. So <laughs> sorry. I was that. just saying, no, that's okay. I was just saying what I'd love to kind of tap into now is because of that consistency, like what I'd love you to share a little bit more about the story around what got you here. Yeah. Uh, not a straight path. <laughs> um, it never is linear of, ever. Yeah. A lot of weird, weird things and kind of rebellion. Um, so I got a, I got a very early unintentional start into entrepreneurship before I knew what the word entrepreneurship was. Um, very fortunate to come from, a house and a background that had strong kind of entrepreneurial roots. Um, my mom had a small Apple dealership back in the early days of Apple coming to Canada and sold to um, educational vendors across the country. So got a little bit of exposure when I was young, but ultimately spent a lot of time, an unreasonable and unhealthy amount of time on the internet playing games when I was a kid. And got into a lot of conversation with my parents about how much time I was spending online. And a lot of it kind of came down to whether or not I could show if there was value in online games. And fortunately at the time, eBay was a fairly new thing. Um, some of the games I was playing, the items that existed in those games took hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to achieve or find. Uh, and so got started out kind of selling some of those items online on eBay to kind of show that gaming could produce value. Um, and 
over the course of kind of years of doing that, going from finding stuff myself to working with friends online to build really basic bots and automation programs to doing it at scale, um, kind of built a business doing the black market of mm -hmm. online gaming currency transactions early on, um, which is really funny when I've been we've been very involved in like the NFT crypto world in the last number of years. And it's like, I was doing this 20 years ago before anyone knew what to call it. It was just Neo points and items in Diablo and world of Warcraft um, and completely against terms of service. So that was kind of my first exposure into the entrepreneurial world. Unfortunately, because we were breaking every version of terms of service in existence and also way too young to actually have legitimate eBay or PayPal accounts. Um, we ended up kind of selling the assets of that business in a panic to a Chinese company that was not as concerned about all the things we were doing. Um, but all of that kind of happened between the time I was like 10 and 16. Wow. And it all evolved in this online ecosystem of just learning how to business. I, I joke that like the bulk of my kind of business degree came from manipulating economies in World of Warcraft, but mm -hmm. it's kind of true. <laughs> um, they're just like micro economies. And so that's, that's kind of what got me started. And I had no idea what startups were. I had no idea what entrepreneurs were. I'd never really heard those words. Um, so after, after that exit, we, I was like, okay, well, I probably need to be an adult. So being an adult is going to school, going to university, apply I, there should be a system <laughs> that looks at the programs you apply to and if your range is too big it just says no don't go back to start try again because i think <laughs> i applied to history at york game design and entrepreneurship at uit political science at carlton law somewhere else and like i had no idea i, I had <laughs> absolutely no clue i got a great scholarship from carlton so it's like cool where's carlton <laughs> um Moved from Pickering to Ottawa, got into Carleton, started doing the school thing. Very quickly realized I loved Ottawa, hated school. Um, and so during the course of snow currency and everything I'd done there, I had a ton of exposure to building presence online. I'd been mm -hmm. a very early kind of founding moderator member of a huge trading community online, um, where at the time I think we had 800,000 users. And Wow like tons of transactions. This is all back in like 2006, 2007. Um, and so while at university kind of started poking around to see if there were companies that needed help navigating the internet. Um, a really good friend of mine was at university in Waterloo, introduced me to a group called impact entrepreneurship. I was like, Oh, Oh, entrepreneurship. That's cool. This seems like my people um, started a terrible startup idea doing marketing consulting and on the idea that I could just create a like lottery tool on the internet funded by ads. Um, but through a series of crazy social events, ended up meeting a bunch of generals with the Canadian military. I got involved with revamping the Canadian military YouTube channel for a little while. That led me to some other people that wanted to start a game development company which ultimately led us to founding uh, Rocket Owl, where we built a social impact game on Facebook and got over mm. a million users during the height of kind of the Flash Games Zynga insanity on Facebook. We raised a ton of money, um, scaled like crazy, and 
then scaled back down like crazy when we couldn't monetize uh, enough. And so that was, that was kind of the launch into the entrepreneurial world. And I started Rocket Owen was 21, closed 600,000 in angel funding that year, and then wow. went on to raise another 2 million over the next four years doing, doing Rocket Owl. Amazing. Love it. I love the story of it's clearly something that's always been a part of you. And like in hindsight, what's, what's so interesting to me is, you know, as a child trying to create, trying to showcase the value that being online and being in games, what could lead to, right. To showcase to your parents, like, Hey, I'm actually getting some value out of this. And then to think, you know, 20 plus years later, you are sitting as a CEO and founder of multiple successful businesses. And let's talk about the one that you're running right now, which is Iversoft. Like, how did this all come? Where did the idea come from? And how has this evolved over the last multiple years? Yeah. So it's actually kind of a funny, well, it's it's part of how I met Dan, if we kind of look back far enough. Um, when Rocket All was kind of winding down, a very good friend and mentor, um, ended up buying kind of the underlying technology from Rocket All. And as part of that, had me come over and be CEO for what was kind of a hybrid marketing accelerator, early stage venture fund. And through that fund, we invested in a number of companies. We primarily focused on SaaS companies. Um, I co-founded and launched a SaaS platform called ProPet Software, um, still active today. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of like 55 million uh, users right now. Um, and ended up doing the venture thing for probably three years. And during the course of that, I got reconnected with Matt and Vicky, who were the original founders at Iversoft. Um, and they were launching an engineering hardware company at the time doing kind of high-end cooling for gaming computers and data centers. They'd kind of leveraged an engineering team that had been working in F1 and doing this really cool stuff. They were trying to get us to invest. Um, it wasn't a fit for the portfolio, but after chatting with them kind of over the course of a year back and forth, they eventually were like, would you want to come on board and be CEO for the engineering company and help us kind of scale this up, raise funds and and go big? And I said, maybe let me talk to my kind of network and mentors and I ended up coming back and like, well, I think this is cool. Everyone I've talked to in my entire life says hardware is a terrible idea and expensive and complicated. Um, so what if I came on board to do the engineering thing with you guys, but also come on board to help with Iversoft? And at the time, Iversoft, I think, was five years old, was a team of seven and had exclusively done kind of iOS mobile apps Um for a variety of kind of Canadian clients. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a little bit, six months in, the cost of manufacturing the hardware stuff, terrible, couldn't find a path to viability. Um, and so we kind of stopped chasing that direction and started to really focus on Iversoft. And in the last seven years, we've grown Iversoft from that team of seven to now a coast-to-coast -coast team of over 50 full-time um, are on track to do 10 million in services revenue in the next probably 12 months, um, have gone from a large headquartered office in Ottawa, 12,000 square feet, 
nice reno, uh, pandemic hits, uh, go fully remote, fully virtual, uh, are now fully distributed across the country, um, ended up piloting. I think we were one of the first companies in the country to pilot a compressed four-day work week on top mm. of the flexibility, um, have had the opportunity to work with some of the biggest brands in Canada, some of the biggest brands in entertainment in the US and have a portfolio now of over, I think 300 mobile apps we've contributed to and hundreds of projects across across the portfolio and just having a lot of fun getting to build and experiment at kind of the bleeding edge of, of technology. Mm. So many follow-up questions on this one. <laughs> Let's start grounding people in what Iversoft actually does. What is the service that you provide to um, your clients? Yeah. So what's, what I think is interesting there, and I, I want to take a bit of a step back before completely answering that, is I want to mm-hmm. talk about what we were and what we've become. Because I, okay. I also think this is a journey that a lot of services companies go through. Um, when I joined and when we, pretty much from inception, we were a project-based company where someone would come through the front door and be like, I need an app. We would build the app, we would give them a price, um, and we would move on. And that was kind of our model for probably nine years. Um, two and a half, three years ago, we started really taking a hard look at whether or not that model was working for us or whether and whether it was working for clients. And most of the time, the answer was not really, um, largely because the projects we were taking on were becoming more and more complex and mm-hmm. technology was advancing so rapidly, there was usually a number of pivots that kind of happened along the way from kind of idea to market delivery. And so we started moving the model away from project-based billing more to what we call dedicated teams where clients will come to us and say, look, we're, we're looking to launch this product or we have a product, we need to launch it on mobile. Um, and Iversoft builds the team that does the fulfillment, everything from the developers to the project management, to QA, to product management. Um, depending on the needs, we we kind of put that team in place. We oversee it. We bring all of our expertise and support um, and work kind of hand in hand with our clients to, to ship projects, but on a retainer model versus a project model, mm. um, because it gives a lot more flexibility to adapt when changes come in in scope or a new version of iOS comes out and there's a pivot that is required. Um, We're not spending all of our time doing like, okay, well, now there's a change request. Let's talk about the impact of the change request. It's a much more agile approach where it's like, okay, here's your team. We're all running full speed. We can adjust what the deliverables will be. We can kind of change the project plan on a week by week sprint basis. So it's a lot more flexible, a lot more adaptive. And honestly, that switch is what allowed us to effectively triple in size over the last three years. Um, It was just so much more consistent. It was easier for clients to manage. It was a lot more predictable for them on what resources they had, what their timelines would look like, easier for us to manage. Mm -hmm. So we went from a place that was 100% project revenue probably four years ago to now we are 90% retainer team revenue and 10%. We still take on occasional uh, project stuff, but that is that is kind of the bulk of our world. But I think finding ways for services businesses to create that recurring, sustainable, predictable revenue is not only better for your business, but it, it's significantly better for how you deliver value to clients. The byproduct of that change for us is it fundamentally changed the philosophy of a lot of the metrics we were looking at mm-hmm. in a project-based model, your project managers, your executive oversight, 
a lot of your KPIs are focused on the profitability of a project. Like how much faster, cheaper, quicker are we delivering this than we scope? Because that directly ties to our margin. What's not really in that conversation, it is, but it's always kind of at odds with the profitability thing is how much value are we delivering? Are we making the right choices? Are we choosing the right technology? If you have a fixed bid model and two check tech choices to make, one is going to be an extra two or three weeks, but much more long-term survivable versus kind of a quick thing that might or might not last. In a fixed bid world, you're going with the faster version. In a dedicated team, you're having that very open conversation with the client. Like, look, here's the situation. Here's what we can do. What do you want to do? It's in everyone's kind of mutual interest to make the best decisions for the product long-term, because in a lot of cases, we're supporting these products Mm long-term and um, providing that. So to me, that change in how value is presented and how value is prioritized both on our side and for our clients um, has been instrumental in helping push our Mm. growth. Has that then led to greater like lifetime value of clients for you internally? And has it also led to less churn for you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, it's (laughs) so smart of how you're, how you're thinking about that. My curious question to you is how did you get the feedback or what was the kind of innate knowingness to actually look at the model and kind of question the model? Was it feedback from the market? Was it feedback from clients? Was it an internal like team dynamic where we started to question things? Where did you, where did the questions come from to say like, Hey, is this model actually working anymore? All of the above. Um, like okay. very much a combination of like, we were looking at the financials and it was like, some projects would be really profitable. Some would be a loss and trying to navigate and pinpoint what was a predictor for us of what would be a profitable project versus not profitable project when we work in probably two dozen technology stacks across an evolving ecosystem. And if you had a 200K mobile project three years ago and you take on a 200K mobile project today, there isn't a whole lot of one-to-one comparison of like, what did we learn three years ago that is applicable today? It's like the tech stacks are different, the model's different, the foundation, the hardware's like everything is different. So that progressive knowledge moving forward, it can be a bit of a guide, but is not a great predictor. And so we said like from a financial standpoint, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. From a team morale standpoint, we had people being kind of measured on profitability from our project managers who were like, well, I don't feel like I have complete control of this because I'm not in the code always or don't have the right lever or like clients are making different decisions on prioritization or changing things. Um, so that was a challenge from a client perspective. It's like, okay, well, either we maintain profitability and have a lot of change request conversations and they don't love hearing from us all the time of like, Hey, that change you asked for that makes a lot of sense that we agree with is also going to cost you more money that you weren't planning on. Um, all of that kind of came together and there was just multiple conversations across the whole company where people were like, okay, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a different way of doing this where we can still bring a lot of the expertise we brought or we've gained over the years. And it's where we kind of came up with the idea of dedicated model. That's a little bit different than more traditional staff augmentation where um, in the like nuts and bolts of it, we actually give 85% of the team's time to the clients and we reserve 15% on our side that we use for coaching and professional development. 
And the idea there is like, there's cross training that happens between the teams. There's knowledge transfer of like, if we're building five apps at the same time, the idea of working with us versus hiring someone is you're benefiting from the fact that we're solving these problems on multiple fronts that you don't benefit from that unless we're making time to actually do some knowledge sharing and knowledge transfer of like, what have we learned? What have we run into before? So it was a lot of that that kind of led to an evolution. And then honestly, as with any company, right? Proof is in the pudding. When you take it to the market and go, does anyone want to work with us this way? And Mm -hmm. what we ended up doing though, is in, we changed our pricing model completely. We went with a fully transparent pricing model on the dedicated team because we don't need a an hourly rate that obscures everything. We went fully transparent. So we're like, all right, here's the here's the raw cost of all the people on your team. Here's the raw cost of our overhead. And we're going to put 20% on your team costs. And that's the model. Um, and honestly, it's been uh, it's pretty much eliminated price negotiation in our world um, because we're kind of like you you have the spreadsheet of all of the numbers. Where would you like to negotiate? I can get you more junior talent. That's how we can push the price down. Um, but otherwise, it, it kind of is what it is. And that's been appreciated by our clients and been a lot easier to have great conversations around. It's also been interesting because it's it's shown a push from a lot of our clients to to get more intermediate and senior talent. Because like, okay, mm-hmm. well, like the relative increasing cost isn't that crazy and in in the development world like the output performance can be significant so mm. yeah it's it's, it's been cool we're still we're still learning we're still, we're still figuring it out and uh everything but it's been it's been a pretty cool cool journey so far love this all right next question is going to go much more towards the people agenda because there's love it there's so many things that you just said in the original conversation <laughs> of what iversoft is <laughs> where you're fundamentally doing things differently. And so I'm going to start at the top and we'll kind of work our way down. What led to the decision to go fully remote and decide not to go back into your 12,000 square foot, beautifully renovated headquarters? And what led to the decision to go from five days a week to four? Yeah, with your great question. So I would love to tell you that the move to remote was entirely of our own choosing. And we were just innovative and ahead of the curve. Uh, I am happy to say, I think we were about two weeks ahead of the curve. Um, Pandemic started hitting. Well, so a little bit of context here. Uh, We had a generous work from home policy prior to the pandemic where we would allow with written permission from manager, one work from home day every two weeks um, that I think we allowed like eight times. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it is generous, I, 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 which is funny. <laughs> Looking to back, back at some it, of those documents, I'm just like, yeah. mm-hmm. oh my, wow, what were we thinking? Fundamentally, there was a belief and concern across our team, despite being a very young, very connected, very kind of internet first organization that we weren't sure how to properly facilitate collaboration and kind of creative iteration and delivery on projects if if everyone wasn't in the same room all the time. We started to see the trends when COVID was taking off and uh, credit to our overall management team, we ended up having a quick call and be like, hey, we're seeing a trend here in the States. It's not here yet. And we're seeing kind of like murmurings of this. Before we're told we have to be remote, 
what if we went remote and figure out anything that breaks while we can still bring people back together to like talk through it? Um, so we went remote, I think two weeks before actual lockdown happened. And what was interesting is within 30 days of going remote, every metric we paid attention to or measured was up. So mm. code commit was up, volume and cadence on all of our projects was up, general staff happiness was up, quality of life was up for everyone that was dealing with family and juggling stuff. And it was like, and I think, I think there was maybe a day of hiccups while everyone kind of figured out video conferencing and screen sharing and everything. But the entire delay to the organization going remote was less than a day. Um, And since then, if we look back at data kind of pre-remote, there's no comparison. We We are more efficient as a company. We are faster and we can attract better talent today than we could three years ago. And I think that just kind of cascaded from there as we started to realize all of the different benefits of being remote. It's like, oh, our talent pool just changed from who can commute to this building to who is legally allowed to work in Canada. We haven't broken out of Canada yet. We're still figuring out whether or not that's a thing we want to do. But currently, <laughs> our, our world is kind of who who can legally work in Canada. And the change that made overnight in our ability to recruit and retain incredible talent um, has been phenomenal. Like we, yeah, I I cannot, cannot speak highly enough to the impact that remote culture has had for the talent that we've been able to attract and retain. Mm, So true. It's, it's one of the first questions I get asked when meeting candidates these days is what is the policy? And often if it's not hybrid or remote, there's, I would say we drop off by at least 50% of the talent pool not being interested anymore. And so, yeah, I can imagine that coast to coast connect, like in, in the talent market within Canada, you think about the pond you were, you were in to now the ocean you have of going coast to coast, you just you're playing a numbers game sometimes like your numbers just expand and your ability to find talent who we have a lot of cases where we have people on our team who relocated over COVID and like chose to get their families out of big cities and go to smaller remote locations. I also say it was pretty innovative. I went to small town before COVID, but like during COVID people, people were saying like your front you're looking at the Lake Huron in your backyards of forest. You can still be outside and doing all of the things. And I just think it's just creates such a different dynamic. That's really helpful to kind of hear that specifically from you. And then what was the choice to go to four days over five? Now I'm really curious. Yeah. So after going fully remote, um, I, I, I like, we like to have a lot of discussions across our leadership team and we used to think we were really progressive with this. I think we, we, we've we come a long way. There's still obviously areas to push, but um, at least once a year in our strategic planning, we try and go through a process or a session of kind of challenging assumptions. And this was kind of brought front and center for us with the like, everyone being like, we couldn't possibly do remote. And then it's like, oh, remote is the best thing we've ever done for the company. Cool. Um, And so in one of those conversations of kind of challenging assumptions, a lot of us had seen different articles about like true four-day work weeks and software and what that looks like and compressed schedule and everything else. And it's like, okay, what if, what if we were wrong that 
the nine to five schedule is a critical component of us being able to deliver. We're fully remote. We have all of the asynchronous tools at this point. Outside of specific meeting points, why do we care when people get work done? And this was something we kind of leaned into a little bit at the beginning of COVID of just kind of a people first mentality across the organization of like, look, the whole world is stressful. Nobody knows what's going on. Everything is crazy. You got kids at home. You're trying to like, we had families where it's like, they've got three young kids trying to do kindergarten in the background on a video call, two parents taking calls from a kitchen. It's like, your life is a little bit crazy right now. We understand if you need some flexibility that 9am in the morning is not a great time in your household to be doing stuff. And you would prefer to be able to do it at two in the afternoon. That's probably fine as long as your stuff gets done. And so when we started looking at that model, it, we surveyed the staff a lot. And as you would kind of expect, got a myriad of opinions on what is the right schedule for each individual. And so in order to try and accommodate that and be provide maximum flexibility while still having the kind of predictability we needed in a services business, um, a, a combination of, I think, staff as people and culture, our COO, Laura, um, kind of came together and we're like, okay, if we move to a compressed four-day work week as the core business hours, and so the way we ended up defining it is Iversoft's business hours are 10 to 3, Monday to Thursday. Our expectation is, regardless of what time zone you're in, regardless of where you are at or what you're doing, um, we should be able to book you in an internal meeting, a client meeting, whatever, within those hours without any issues or conflicts. Outside of that, you can choose how and where you log your time and hours. And the important thing there is freeing up Friday as no meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so if people just want a heads down day, and we have a lot of people that do kind of the standard nine to five Monday to Friday, um, we had a lot of devs immediately switch to four 10 hour days. Um, and again, we have all the data from this, like code volume stayed the same tickets moved at the same rate. So whether they're doing their tickets over five days, eight hour days, or four 10 hour days, we're shipping the same amount of stuff for clients. So cadence isn't an issue. Um, and but morale and happiness went through the roof and the kind of prevailing sentiment from staff was like, wow, you're treating us like adults. Like I can, I can kind of make a schedule that works for me, my family, my kids. Like if I need to, if I need to pick kids up at daycare at four o'clock, I don't need to like submit a request. Nobody's going to get pissed off with me. It's like, no, it's your, like, if you're mm -hmm. off at four, get your kids, you do time with them. They go down at seven, you do two hours in the evening. If that's what works for you, make it work for you. Like we're good. We know the outputs we need and we know what we've kind of committed. And as long as we're meeting those commitments, we're happy. And I'm happy to say like three years into it, I think 50 something staff. I think we've had one instance of a situation where we had to sit down with someone and like go over kind of inappropriate use of the policy, but otherwise it's been like phenomenal across the board. and we've been able to poach and attract talent from kind of anywhere we want <laughs> at this point. Like our recruiters, like, I love this pitch because I can, well, I can walk through the door at any company and be like, Hey, we have competitive rates, a four day flexible schedule where you choose how and where you put your hours. And it's now committed at the corporate governance level that we are remote forever. 
do you want to have a conversation? <laughs> um, it's the best door opener I've ever heard when it comes to company benefits <laughs> and perks. It's so good. Here's what I love is I hear this and I'm playing this back to you. What I hear is we're a performance-based organization. So as long as performance is met and we're hitting KPIs, then you know, we're, we're performance first. And at the same, in the same vein, we choose to extend, extend trust because we're going to trust that performance is going to get done. And when you say like, Hey, our, our employees are happy because they feel like they're being treated like an adult. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's that, it's that (laughs) mentality of the undertone of I'm going to choose to extend trust and I'm going to choose to be performance-based. Now, as a CEO and as an executive team, when those things become in question, we may need to dive into into your performance or into understand if we need to kind of monitor things differently. But until performance is not met, that's almost off the table. And it creates this environment where what I have seen in my experience of obviously being in corporate HR and then helping so many different diverse teams grow and scale over the last seven years is people lean in even more because of their excitement to work for a company who's going to approach them in that capacity. So I love that. Thank you for sharing. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of us who get so habitual in what's always been. And I do think COVID in so many ways rocked the old paradigms and what we believed was true. But I love that your leadership team takes the time to assess and question those paradigms beyond just remote work. It's it's one of the challenging things to do, um, partially because it's also hard to identify. It's like, what are the assumptions we run our day-to-day on? what are the things that nobody talks about or nobody even acknowledges is a rule that we're operating within to challenge it? Because like often it's like Monday to Friday. That is a thing that is, that, that is not a negotiable part of the business. Like you are open five days a week. It's like, or not like, mm-hmm. or you can push and deliver high performance in a different way. Like, I think there's, it's something that I, I'm kind of intrigued to hear in your world as well. Like, I hear all the time from execs at other companies of like, oh, we could never do that. Our clients would never accept that. Or like, mm-hmm. that would that would kill us. And I was like, we had some awkward conversations with clients. They're like, I want to be able to call you on a Friday. I was like, okay, you can call your account person on a Friday. You cannot pull your devs in on a Friday. You have world-class people on your team. Part of why they are on your team and working on your project is we provide this flexibility. Nine times out of 10, that conversation has gone well because it's like, okay, yeah, no, I'm happy with what they're doing with what they're doing. I like the group. If it means I have to have a call on a Thursday instead of a Friday, I'll live with it. But this embedded entrenched, like I can't change it, or like I need to be able to see my people to know that they're working. Um, like that's got to be such a challenging thing in your world of like the executive placement and like that executive mm-hmm. search world of like, how do you do you do kind of I don't, I don't know if it's like modern culture coaching with groups before trying to bring in talent or like, does that, does that factor into your world? Oh gosh, so much. So, um, <laughs> yes, well, a lot of the times when I'm talking about, when I'm talking about talent holistically, I'm looking at metrics across really three kind of core buckets, which is how are we attracting great people? How are we developing those people? And how are we keeping those people retaining? So attract, develop, retain is really when I think about talent, the three main buckets that I'm going to look at. 
Now, like you, there's 150 different metrics we could get into under each component, but we yeah. won't go there. At the highest level, those are the those are the facets that I'm looking at. Before I do any placement of an executive, I actually would call myself more of a strategist first. So I'm working directly with the founder to have conversations much like you're having, which awesome. is poking and prodding at some of the real life metrics and stories that are currently happening in their environment today. So it's a lot of, Hey, where, what's your mission and what, what does the company stand for in the first place? And then we start to drive into what's the current reality, like what's actually showing up in your business today. A lot of the times there could be things like, Hey, I've tried to hire this COO two times before and it didn't work. Okay. Now I'm curious. I'm like, okay, (laughs) why? It sounded like you could attract the talent, but what was going on once the talent came? And Mm -hmm. so understanding the nuances and having the proper conversations from a holistic perspective. And that may mean me going in and having 15 conversations with staff to get a better understanding of what are some of the trends and insights that are coming out of that. You know, it's so critical and important to really understand the kind of nuances within why that COO search didn't work in the first place and then understand. So I always go, what's the mission? What's current reality? Where are you trying to take this business? And now what are some of the truths that need to be here in order for you to do that? And often really diving into things like culture, if we can't attract the right talent, why can't we? What's showing up for them? What's the feedback we're hearing from them? What's the market demanding now that has never demanded before, right? There's for, it's it's swinging a bit now in, in the last, I would call it 10 months, but for two years, the candidate was in the driver's seat. They could essentially Absolutely. ask whatever they wanted. <laughs> and companies were like, oh, how do we make that a reality? And how do we keep that consistent? So there are changes that are happening holistically in the market, but we need to think about things more holistically. So to your point, what I hear you saying and what I love is you're not just thinking about getting great talent. What I hear you say is we're also thinking about their personal development, professional development, and that 15% where you're sharing and doing best practice sharing internally. And then ultimately, I'm curious, I have an idea of what it looks like, but what's your retention? How many people are staying with you? How many people are leaving? Astronomically high. Um, like I think I think we're under 5% in terms of churn um, across the organization. Like, And that speaks for itself. Yeah. Those are <laughs> metrics I want to see, right? Some of the organizations I go into with, with founders, um, you know, the first thing they're like, I have a talent issue. Okay, well, then we have to break that down. And when you look at like one of the first things I want to see is, is the churn, like how many from an employee retention standpoint, what does that turnover look like? And more times than not, it's, you know, we're looking at like 50% turn. People might stay for six, 12 months, or there might be a mark. It's like they stay for 18 months and then they leave. Well, why? Yeah. Right. And it's because somebody comes, knocks on the door and says, Hey, I have this really cool company that's doing flexible (laughs) work weeks and no Fridays and work from anywhere across the country. And somebody's being more innovative. And in today's culture versus, you know, 20 years ago in our, or in our parents' generation, people are more willing to take that next step to better themselves and to better their lifestyle over staying with somebody from a loyalty standpoint. Absolutely. I I think one of the other metrics that I think is super relevant, and we've 
I've haven't had those conversations much, but I know um, Steph has had it over and over again and was talking about it recently at a panel in Toronto is our, we invest a lot in employee onboarding as well. There's a lot of early coaching and support. And I believe the last stat I saw from her is we have not lost anyone in their first six months in the last four years. So cool. Which from an HR onboarding standpoint, I understand is kind of like that, that is your golden window. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. kind of lose someone, you tend to lose them in that window. And a lot of companies don't really do onboarding. They're kind of like, congratulations. Here's your laptop. Here's your task list. Go. Yeah, we'll see you at your performance out. review. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that gets so undersold in yeah. so many places. Like I had a, I had a conversation a few months ago with another big software services company and they were, they were in the midst of doing their return to office policy and at the same time saying like they're having an issue with talent and they have a 50% churn rate of new hires over the last 12 months. I was like, mm-hmm. do you, do you not see how those things are related? Like mm-hmm. oh, you're gosh, dealing so with a talent so. base that is like, yeah, flexibility or remote. And I can kind of work with who I want to work with. And I mean, it's changing a little bit, but I don't think yeah. for good talent, it's changing that much and blows my mind how much organizations sometimes undervalue that people strategy component and the role of people first or people officer or director people, like whatever Mm -hmm. it is, um, having a Jackie come in early when you're growing. Like we have had some version of a full-time people and culture role at Iversoft since we were 10 people. Mm -hmm. And as a company where our entire product offering is people um, and is software development and the talent we can put behind it, it blows my mind when I meet services organizations, whether it's marketing or software or whatever, that are 50, 60, 100 people that don't actually have anyone whose full-time responsibility it is to develop people and culture. And like, it's where... I want to kind of scream about your services from the top of every mm. building I can find for organizations that are like, you guys have to take this seriously. Like it's such, if you're not a product business and I still think this should live in a product business, but if you're a services business where your entire client offering is the people that you are putting forward, the creative minds you're bringing on the talent you've got, and you don't have somebody whose full-time responsibility it is to make sure you are at the cutting edge of attracting and retaining that talent you're fundamentally doing your company a disservice and you're doing mm-hmm. your clients a disservice for not investing in the talent there. And I think like I've had the conversation recently where people are like, Oh, I can't, I can't afford it. I was like, cool. Add 4% to every invoice you're sending and hire the role. Like the output of what you do will pay for itself very quickly. Um, so if you need so some true. quotes on your site, I will. I will throw that everywhere. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. One last question from me. And it really comes to this place of, I have a lot of conversations with CEOs and founders where letting go of control comes up and knowing when to hire that next peer from a strategic level, from an executive level, we can call it right across the C-suite. So when do you hire that head of people? When do you hire your COO, CFO, et cetera? And oftentimes 
I'm sensing this kind of conflict internally of the founder or CEO behind what I'm holding on to and where I need the support. In your mind, what is the role, true role of CEO for a company? And at what point in time is it just critical for the success of the business to let go and bring somebody in that may frankly be more qualified than you in certain skill sets? I love that question. Um, So many things to say there. Um, Fundamentally, I think it is the role of the CEO to ensure financial viability of the organization, whether that is fundraising, making sure there's a customer funnel, making sure you've got eyes on the kind of financial operations of the business. Like it's good to have a CFO, it's good to have an accountant, it's good to have all of that, but like ultimately it rests with the CEO to make sure the finances of the organization run. And then your second job is to make sure there are people smarter than you doing everything else. That's it. Like there is nothing you do that is so precious and so special to you that it cannot eventually be trained and taught to somebody else. And I actually had this conversation yesterday with some of our, some of our sales group where as much as I like to think we are special and unique in how we build software and how we build teams, and there's a secret sauce to how we do it, the reality is Accenture has hundreds of thousands of employees building far bigger projects than we take on, and it's not their CEO selling everything. So mm-hmm. ultimately, the job, in my view, of the CEO is to find people smarter than you to do things that is in their energy, in their rhythm, that they are so deeply passionate about and excited about that you just kind of get to stand back in awe of them every day. And I have kind of made a career out of desperately trying to not be anywhere close to the smartest person in the room and just surround myself with people far more qualified than I am and constantly work to not have, not have things to do. Like as, as backwards as that sounds, like I should not be the decision point or the blocker for anything in the company to happen. And anytime I feel like I am, or I'm becoming an integral part, take a step back, look at that system. This actually goes back to what we said at the beginning. Anytime you think you are critical to the business and you are critical to delivery, go through the 10 X exercise, 10 X, exactly what you're doing. Can you do that at 10 X volume? If you can, Cool. Grow 10x. You've got growth in front of you. Do that. More than likely, you cannot 10x the effort you are putting in. Therefore, you must create systems and training and process and find people to be able to do it. If you don't have the budget to, you might be very early on. Go buy, buy back your time, read through it, (laughs) find ways to free up time to create more value, to build your team, to kind of keep rolling that forward. Because, like, ultimately, businesses that are handicapped by CEO delivering core components will never grow beyond that person's hours in a week. And at least for me, that's not the kind of business I want to grow. Um, We want to go big. We have ambitious plans for where we're going. And none of that is possible if the whole organization grinds to a halt because one person can't do anything. And this applies to anyone in your C-suite. It's not just CEO, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think CEOs where it starts, but then your next job inherently becomes teaching the rest of your C-suite to do the same thing. And mm-hmm. oh, your C-suite becomes that kind of guiding compass, directional B 
beacon for the team, your source of training, your source of kind of challenging assumptions, but should never be the bottleneck that stops the organization from delivering. If anything, it should be if your C-suite is getting involved, the quality drops because you're taking work away from people who are true, deep knowledge experts at that. And it's been interesting. This is actually a conversation I've had a lot with our CTO. Because um, back when I joined, Vicky was kind of our all-star dev who could solve all things. Now we have 40 developers. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even know some of the languages we work in. And that was a very big shift. But now a lot of her role is about coaching and mentorship and making sure we're looking at the right technologies, making sure we're interviewing the right way, making sure that our dev culture for how we do code review, for how we do audits, for like making sure philosophically we're going in the right direction. It's less about, oh, Vicky getting in and like writing code every day or being the best person. Like you should actively work for your C-suite to not be the best person in the organization at the thing because you should be hiring really, really smart people and developing them. So yeah. Oh, I love it. Long-winded answer for- what a CEO should do, but I love it. Thank you for sharing that. It's such a gift to just hear from your perspective and somebody who has done this so many times, what it takes to be successful and to create not just a $10 million company because the 10 X challenge has now been not only shared with you <laughs> from your mentor, but we've now talked about it here, but what does it look like for you to be a CEO of a hundred million dollar company? And that'll be really fun to go on that journey with you as I know our friendship is is new, but I feel (laughs) like it's going to be longstanding and it'll be exciting to to keep growing together. We'll do another, we'll do another one of these at each major milestone. Oh, I like it. Progress the journey. Yeah. And what has happened? What's shown up? I need you to take like a notebook and write down all the challenges and we're going to talk (laughs) about those. I love it. Suffering, learning. Yes. So good. Excitement. Yeah. Awesome. Best place for people to either learn more about Iversoft because they're listening, they think your service is actually something they need, or to get to know you better as the CEO and reach out to you from a peer mentorship standpoint. Where are the places that you hang out mostly these days? Yeah, uh, two two big ones. So Iversoft.ca is by far the easiest way to get in touch with us if you want to reach out about our services. Um, for getting in touch with me, either LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, Graham Barlow is hands down the best way to, to reach out and always excited to meet uh, other people on similar journeys, always open to having conversations and sharing kind of war stories. I've done, fortunately, I've done kind of the gambit of early stage clueless 20 something CEO raising money scaling up, scaling down. I've been on the investor side now as kind of mini venture. I've been on the investor side as an angel, um, sold multiple organizations and scaled a bunch. So happy to happy to connect on any, any front. I, yeah. I love really it. appreciate the chance to chat today. It's been I such love a what pleasure you're doing with the show. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. And I'm so grateful to have your time. And remember, guys, if you were listening in, if you made it this far, we do have 10 copies of Buy Back Your Time to give out. So tag us, let us know Twitter. So let's do Twitter and LinkedIn primarily, because that's where Graham and I are both hanging out lots. And (laughs) give us a tag, let us know what you took away from the show. And we're so grateful for you to tune in. Graham, thank you for being here. And to everyone listening, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. 
Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on The Jackie Service Show.